Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150, tough this smart, can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024, pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024, cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution. On the other Can side. you cow flip it? Yeah, please oh, flip yeah, it. Oh, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> that's so weird. I don't know why. Let's try again. I'm glad to say that uh, we've already made there we go. NASCAR and NBC podcast history because you've, you, I first think one? you're the first one ever. Daniel Hemrick has flipped the mic over to the right side of his face. So. Well, that's good. I'd like be the first. <laughs> Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today here at a Marathon gas station on Highway 3 here out in what I believe Dateline is Davidson. Is that, uh, is that right? Uh, it's considered Mooresville, I thought. Mooresville, maybe. Okay. Is it it's, we're right on, the, <laughs> right on the line. I think it's like Davidson on the maps, but this is not Steph Curry Davidson. Not at all. <laughs> like we, if you're somebody who thinks of Davidson as being a college town, that is not where we are uh, as Daniel just said, we are we are very much kind of more in a Mooresville Concord type environment. And as you already heard, the guest today is Daniel Hemrick. What's up, man? Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's cool to sit down and chat with you for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's good to do this as well on my end, as we were just discussing. I haven't had the pleasure of uh, getting to do this yet with you. And uh, obviously a big year for you coming into the Cup Series with Richard Childress Racing. The idea behind these podcasts, Daniel, is just to sort of get to know more about you. So good time to get to know more about you being a rookie in the Cup Series. And I think we can start with, why are we sitting here <laughs> at this marathon gas station on Highway 3 near Mooresville? That's a great way to kick it off. Um, <laughs> Yeah, definitely a little bit of random. I asked you right before we started if this was the most intimate location you'd ever uh, did the podcast at. But it's cool to be here. You know, I actually, you know, worked right down the road here on Highway 3, maybe two miles from here. Every single day, it felt like uh, when I was legend car racing uh, for a guy named Dan Snyder and Hoyt Demas. And because it was so close, we'd always come up here for breakfast. You know, you'd work till 2 or 3 in the morning working on cars, and you'd be back up at it, you know, 6 or 7. So, we come up here in the morning, get a snack for breakfast, and then uh, 12.30, 1 o'clock would come around and quick two-minute drive up the road, come and uh, grab a club sandwich was always my go-to, which I just, <laughs> you just enjoyed. Yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah, a lot of memories. So it's, it's been cool because, you know, the folks who own this place, I don't even know them know their names exactly, <laughs> but their faces and whatnot, they've always they, they've seen that point, me coming in here as the kid that's probably dirty, look like I've been rolling around, you know, you know, dirty from head to toe working on race cars to be where I'm at. And every year they've, uh, if I've stopped in here on the way through town, hey, you know, you're doing good. And they, they start memorizing the, the car numbers. And um, like I said, I don't know their names, but it's cool to see them recognize, you know, from the beginning. And it was, uh, a lot of it started here. And did they start figuring out who you were because they saw you in TV coverage or <laughs> newspaper coverage? So as I was ordering my club sandwich a minute ago, it took me back because I um, bought my sandwich and the gentleman who owns the place said, is uh, your girlfriend with you today? And I said, <laughs> no, well, she's now my wife. 
and the reason they started recognizing us back then was because when we were legend car racing, my wife, um, her, you know, legend car hauler had a huge wrap down the side, you know, a decal wrap oh. with her face on it. So okay. when she would come in, that was probably their first connection was that girl's on the side of this race car trailer, and here she is, you know, in here with, with me. So uh, from then on, they always made it a point to ask about her and I and, and how the racing was going, and that was uh, yeah, right at 10, 11 years ago, so pretty okay. wild. A lot, of, a lot of stuff changed. As you mentioned, you married Kenzie, the former Kenzie, is it Rustin? Rustin, yep. Rustin and, and now Kenzie Hemrick, and she was also a racer as well and was in, uh, was it uh, Revolution Racing? Was she like driving so university? She, she raced for, that was kind of her last kind of gig, um, Kane in racing, but prior to that, you know, she was, we met, you know, racing legend cars down in Monroe, Louisiana um, in 2008. And so, gosh, it's crazy to say that out loud. So, so long ago, <laughs> time's flown by. But 2008, and then she got her, her chance, you know, her, well, actually her father owned some super late models that she drove for a while based out of this area. And she moved to from Oklahoma to here, um, you know, late 2008. So that's when we really kind of start spending time together. And her racing led from super late models to a couple of ARCA starts with Venturini and, and ran her first year full-time Canaan East with Harry Scott uh, when he first started that program. And I think it was... Some names people probably haven't heard of, you know, in a while, like Dylan Kwasniewski. It was his first year there. Sure, she was yeah. teammates with him. And, and uh, so, yeah, so she did that and, and did a stint there with Revolution, uh, with Rev Racing, and uh, as well as Ben Kennedy. Uh, she drove with Mike Fritz and Ben Kennedy and those guys. And she was kind of, you know, my deal was kind of taken over at that time. So, um, but it was cool that she was able to have the success that she did have, and we can share that every day. It is cool. And you shared some trips here as well, it sounds like. And you've been coming here, you said, for about 10 years? Yeah, 10 or 11 years, yeah. And so you were working on the garage down the street, and or two miles away. And was that Legends Cars at yeah. that point? Yeah, okay. so it was Legend Cars. Okay. So uh, it was called, it was under the umbrella of Dan Snyder Racing. And, okay. um, you know, we were kind of like the, the wholesale, you know, if you were from out of town or even in town, then you had a legend car but didn't really know how to set them up or you needed you know your car you know tires cut you cut tires in that series for for ultimate grip and you know we'd have 10 or 11 cars in there at a week um you know dan snyder would cut all the tires and he kind of taught me the the uh, setup processes and and as that happened he continued to do his thing in the back of the shop cutting tires and i would do majority of the setup stuff as they rolled through and and uh as well as regular maintenance so we had a kind of a, a full shop legend car program it was um, definitely kind of molded me into the you know the ins and outs of of the basics of of racing and and having to do it yourself and um, very thankful for those nights even as frustrating as it was at those times sure, but yeah. it was cool because uh, you know the, the situation I was put in was I had to finish everybody's cars before I could prepare mine um, and it gave me a, a a true a true respect for for what it took to get to the racetrack every week. So I've done a little bit of research, Daniel, but if, forgive my ignorance if I'm not too up on that. But Dan Snyder, you said was who you were driving for then and. He was not the person who put you in a legends car because he was your dad's friend, and he. No, no, that that was that was a little, <laughs> little prior to that. Okay. Yeah. So, you, you want that story too? Yeah, let's start there. <laughs> sure. It so, sounded fascinating. I mean, this is just yeah. a, some guy who just happened to be like a Hendrick Motorsports yeah, he employee was a, and just decided he wants to be a car owner and put you in a legends car. Yeah, uh, you got the gist of it. Yeah, I can take it from there. So, Tim Latiga, he was a family friend of my stepfather uh, back up north in Massachusetts. My stepdad and Tim Latiga went way back racing up there in that area. Both moved here, not at the same time, but my stepdad moved here to chase the dream of racing and, you know, unfortunately fell short. He was racing the Big Ten Series over at Concord, uh, Super Late Mile program back then. And, and Tim went on to be a tire changer like we talked about at Hendrick. And uh, there was a couple weekends when I was even younger, so 13, 14 years old, where, um, you know, my stepdad would have to work. He would end up being just a, a car, um, what do you call it, a service rider at a car dealership. Gotcha. Yep. He would have to work on a Saturday while I was racing Bandoleros and we needed somebody to go to the racetrack and at least help me. 
and uh, Tim Latigo raised his hand and said, oh, y'all come help. <laughs> and he saw then pretty quick the, the kind of equipment I was trying to race with versus what I was racing against. And he right. was like, man, this is – you're kind of fighting a pretty big uphill battle here. And we always had stuff breaking and falling apart. And just we were doing it the only way we knew how to do it, uh, the only way we could do it. I got to be 15 years old, and he came to the racetrack one more time with the Bandolero and said he's got so frustrated. The chain broke two or three times, just all kinds of chaos that – you know, this was very big downhill slide on the racing side of it for me at that time and looked pretty close to the end of it for me. And he's like, hey, I'm going to sell my uh, – he had a, uh, a blue Mustang at the time. He said, I'm going to sell this Mustang. I'm going to sell my four-wheeler. He had a you know, big souped-up four-wheeler. He said, I'm going to sell all that stuff. I'm going to buy a legend car. And neither one of us knew anything about him. He said, we're going to buy a legend car, and you're going to come drive for us, him and his wife, Cheryl. So sure enough that he did just that, sold all that stuff, bought a legend car. We bought a used car from – one of his buddies at Hendrick, and here we are off to the racetrack for my first time racing legend cars, and I was right around 15, 16 years old, and that was like my first real ride where there's no strings attached with family, there's nobody really involved at all, but you know he was a legitimate car owner at that point. It <laughs> never been one, but he was, and, and we, went, we went racing together. That's crazy, man. You were both new to it. You both just fell into it at the same time. 100%. We were trying to figure it out at the same time, and I remember the first year, because we bought a used car, you know, you know how you buy anything used in any kind of motorsports or competition it oh it's only got this much time on it this <laughs> engine's only got this many races on it come to find out we could not make this car turn in a 10 acre field and we raced the <laughs> summer shootout and at that time you had like 50 or 60 cars trying to make the show every week and uh i think we ended up missing one race and just we struggled to run top 10 and at the end of that summer shootout he said to me i'm gonna strip this car and we're gonna put it in a chassis jig and if nothing's wrong with it you're done. You're out of a ride. <laughs> You've shown your talent. And I, and I told to him. Yeah. And I said, I, well, okay, I, go, I don't have anything to say about it. Long story short, he pulls, trips the car down. We go put it in a chassis jig. And it wouldn't even fit. Oh, it was yeah. so twisted. He uh, <laughs> then made the big investment of buying a brand new car. We won the first race out with it. And the rest of the legend car history kind of took off. And you felt vindicated and both a little bit probably silly at the same time yeah. that you've been running exactly. <laughs> this like bent chassis for 100%. how long exactly. was that, that you were running that? Yeah, right? a whole, really a whole season. <laughs> and the, the, I tell you what, the whole full circle funny part of all that stuff goes back to he ends up going to work for Richard Childress Racing, and he was my underneath mechanic last year. Oh, no kidding. Yep, last year at RCR, the last two years at RCR in the Xfinity Series, and um, still a big part of my life to this day. So how did you get started, Daniel, prior to that in, I presume, go-karting? Yeah, absolutely. And, and was your, obviously you grew up in Kannapolis, which is very much a, a racing hotbed, but was your, was your family into it? Did they yeah, still so, bugging you? Or? So I told you my stepfather, he moved down here to, uh, to race and uh, fell short on that side of it. But between him having some ties, you know, in the legitimate side of the actual being a part of racing, my real dad's side of it, and my mother's side of the family were always just fans of the sport. And being, you know, where I was growing up at, here in this area, there's racing all over. Uh, I was five years old, and uh, Concord Motorsports Park is what it was called at the time. Had a, uh, you know, they had their, their half mile that everybody really knows it as. And there's a quarter mile behind the big track, and there's a little fifth mile inside <laughs> of the quarter mile. I said, hey, if you're, uh, you know, five, six years old, you can come here and race any kind of go-kart that rolls. You can come race as a kid. So uh, we had a little yard cart. Uh, my uncle... And my stepfather and my dad all came up with a, an engine to put on this thing. And we went to uh, the racetrack on a Friday night. I was five years old and kind of took off from there. So when you think back, Daniel, to 10 years ago coming to this marathon gas station, I, I should have set the scene better. I mean, this is not, when I say gas station, <laughs> uh, there is a cafeteria area here where we are actually eating, where they have picnic tables and red and white tablecloths. So it's actually, it's not a gas station. It's like the All-American spot. 
That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's an all-American spot. It's the type of place that probably wouldn't have seemed out of place like in the 1950s or 60s. When you think back to you know coming here in, say, I guess 2009, 2010, and coming here now and reflecting on how much has changed, <laughs> is it uh, impossible to wrap it your head around it? It is. It's 100%. You know, I, I remember those nights, especially talking about those times when I started coming here to this gas station for breakfast and lunch of didn't really know why I was, you know, is it worth staying up till 2 or 3 a.m., not only working on your own car, but working on other people's cars and, and just doing whatever I could to be involved in racing. And that was my only shot at the time. And in the middle of Dan Snyder, um, the guy's shop I was working out of, there was a guy named Hoyt Demas who was paying the bills, you know, buying tires and stuff for Dan and I to operate my personal car out of. And and through all those moments, it was like, is it making sense for one for what he's doing for me? I mean, here I am. I'm not, I'm not a 12 or 13 year old kid at this time. I'm, you know, 18, 19 years old. And does it make sense? And, um, for it all to go the way it went, for all the opportunities I've been given, and people give me shots when there weren't many shots to be had, yeah, all progressed from those moments. And you know, ten years is a long time, but when I think about that was only ten years ago, it's crazy how fast this whole deal has has evolved and turned into what it is to be at the cup level. When you think back on how many times you've had things work out that kept your racing career going, you know, aside from that time that. You're driving a Legends car with a bent <laughs> chassis for yep. a year. H how many times did you feel like, man, this could be it? My racing career probably isn't going to get past where we are right now. Oh, my gosh. Um, I can think of probably five or six key moments that that I would be discrediting the people that gave me shots if I didn't, you know, think of at least that many. I mean, because there was, you know, I, I told you about the, the guys I was involved with, with Tim Latiga. And I told you about Dan Snyder and Hoyt Demas. You know, through that process, you know, we were only going legend car race. And, you know, leading into that next point for me was that guy Hoyt was like, hey, listen, you know, we got to get you in a bigger car. He saw guys I was racing with, you know, um, having success. Chase Elliott went from legend cars. Late Miles had success. And uh, a lot of people that, you know, I'd raced with were around. And I somehow, because of a, a legend car customer that we had at Dan Snyder, you know, he had a, we had a construction business, Jeff Bowen was his name and he decided that you know he wanted to go late model racing he was an older guy 35 or so at the time and he got hooked up with a guy named jeff foltz and he said hey you need to go check check uh check this jeff foltz guy out he's a all pro series champion you know i didn't really you know i was always guilty of whatever racing i was doing at the time that's what i was all in i didn't really know a lot about anything else that was going around me so i go meet jeff foltz and started working there at a late model shop got to be you know familiarized with with super late models and that's how i ultimately got my opportunity super late model racing and people kind of scrounge together put tires together and that was like okay there's another another step forward here okay we're, we're making progress and as i'm telling you this stuff man there's so many stories that run through my <laughs> mind uh bruce silver a guy who um used to own racing electronics up until here recently in the last couple of years he actually was the first one to come out of pocket to give me a shot in a in a late model was this um, a concord uh, motorsports park yes it was okay. yeah, yeah, yeah this was a concord motorsports park and um he actually put me in bob dillner's late model at the time and said hey I'll buy the tires and, and cover anything if this kid goes out there and crashes, but uh, just give him a shot at a test. So I remember I went there and tested on a Wednesday night or something, and uh, he was like, yeah, I get out of the car, and I was obviously pumped up, but okay, great, I got to do a test, and Bob and Bruce pulled me aside and said, hey, what do you think about coming back this Friday to race? And I thought, oh, come on, man, you got to be <laughs> messing with me. And uh, we we came back and raced with Bruce's support with, with Bob Dillner, and end up sitting on the pole and running second that night. And that caught some guys like Jeff Foltz's eye and people that, you know, were kind of right. aware that I've been tinkering around on that side of it. Um, guys that, 
you know, if I had just enough means or could put enough time into it that they would let me drive their cars, they would. And that's uh, that snowballed into that next step of my career. Because that went from you're testing a late model, getting behind the wheel of a late model for the first time ever. Uh, and then three or four days later at the same track, you're sitting on the pole and you finish second after they invert the field. Exactly. So people are saying, if he can do that with no experience, that's got to be a good thing, right? 100%. And then that's what I think, you know, that, that gave me the confidence too. Like, hey, if I get another shot, I feel confident I can jump yeah. on these things and, and yeah. do it. And, and that's what it's all about uh, is having that opportunity. And, you know, throughout those years, you know, I, I remember it was about two years there where I didn't really have any full-time racing opportunity. It was a late model race here, two or three here. And, and you get to a point where you didn't have any anybody to buy tires. So I'd work in the shop and kind of like the legend car days, but it was on late models and work and help people. My wife at the time was running super late models like I talked about. I'd go to the track and spot or, or you know, wrench on the cars or whatever it was just to be acclimated and understand the changes because I always felt like whenever I did get that next shot, you know, in, a, in my next late model race that I'd be more aware of the shock builds. I'd be more aware of what changes did what. And I feel like that always helped kind of amplify those shots when I got them because when mm -hmm. I got in, I, I knew how sensitive this adjustment was or what this did for this or why this, this does that. And I always felt like that gave me the ability to take advantage of those opportunities when I got them. And over time, you know, that led to kind of that next moment. Um, the guys, Hoyt Demas, he was having, you know, some struggles with business. He couldn't really buy tires much anymore. And a guy named Rich Clark and him were kind of splitting a car. I was driving back and forth if they, they had time for me to get in one. And, and, Looked like I was at the end of that, you know, the kind of the light was getting more dim at the end of the tunnel at that time. And and uh, a race team out of Georgia in Woodstock, Georgia, Carswell Motorsports, they had had a, a driver that drove for them for like 10 or 12 years since they started their little race program. And they had actually, believe it or not, inherited all their racing stuff from Jody Ridley from way back in the day. And their driver decided, you know, 10 years, 12 years ago that he had had kids and gotten married and he was done. He was tired of the hustle and bustle, the travel of a full-blown touring late model series and he up and quit and here these guys are with nobody to drive their race car and I remember setting up a legend car kind of in my spare time for Hoyt Demas's kid to go to the racetrack and just so happened that they had put a fill-in driver in that late model for Carswell and uh, Hoyt goes up to these people he doesn't know that on this late model team and said hey I got this kid <laughs> Daniel Hemrick you got to put him in you got to put him in and I'd made one pass start and ran second um, and they were happened to be there so they kind of knew my name and knew that I'd ran well but didn't really know me and uh, man Hoyt just wore them out for three or four days like I'll buy the tires if you figure out a way to just let him come drive your super late model one time and they did they gave me a shot to come to Georgia mount my seat we had to fix the whole car from the guy they put in the week before destroyed this car um in like i think it was like 20 hours we had to turn this car around and rebuild the whole car it felt like and went to gresham and ran third to augie grill and bubba pollard i believe it was chase elliott was there probably ran fourth or fifth and and um those people called me up later that week and said hey why don't you come drive full time for us and that was that next shot that really led me through those uh you know late 2000 2011 12 13 14 years that kind of let me make my map and big been like really full-size uh, race cars. And before all that, I think the first time I can remember hearing your name, and I'm sure it's true for a lot of other people too, that with the Legends Million, that was in 2010. Did I skip that over that? That was yeah. a big part too. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> well, it, I mean, obviously that was completely separate from late models. Yep. I mean, that was Legends cars, and that was what you were so good at and certainly made a name for yourself there as well. Um, but that was Charlotte Motor Speedway. It did this $1 million Legends car race, and I believe there's a little bit of a backstory there in terms of you getting in that race oh, and, man. and winning it. Yeah, there's a ton of stories of that. You know, I, I'd had so much success years prior at the summer shootout leading up to that event, and, and they announced that 
you know, Brute Smith and SMI and everyone's going to put that show on. And I hate to say it, but we were kind of the, the sure bet can't lose. Well, in the middle of them, us having success in 2009, I believe it was, to the race in 2010, they changed a tire. And we had struggled so bad <laughs> on the new tire. I mean, we were still winning races, but for whatever reason, our dominance we had had there on that flat quarter mile, we didn't really quite have anymore. So I remember going into that event, I'm going to get this number wrong, but we had 11 or 12 customer cars that we had to prepare for that race. So all we have, you know, you could imagine, you know, we have six or eight garage stalls, you know, in the cup garage there, and all the other teams are all around us. I think there was 330 cars um, entered into that event. Throughout the week, we slowly but surely got it figured out about what I wanted and what I needed, and I knew what I wanted to feel out of the car, just hadn't got there all summer, hadn't figured it out all summer. Throughout practice and qualifying, I think we qualified mid-20s for that race and, and thought, man, I just don't have what I need. And finally hit on something there during our final practice before the heat race and went on to win the heat race, lined up inside the top five um, for the Legends Million. And, and uh, I think I passed Doug Stevens with seven or eight to go to win the race. And uh, definitely was my first opportunity on live television. I think it was on what was speed at the time, you know, $250,000 payday to win that race. And myself, Dan Snyder, and Hoyt Demas all took our thirds of, of the money. And and uh, that, just on a on a standpoint of, of visual, from eyes watching, you know, that was a huge moment because, you know, just the biggest stage you'd ever been on. And to exceed on, on that that stage and have success, that's what uh, also made those talks of going late mile racing the years and two later that made the guys, oh, yeah, well, you're, that, you know, you're the kid that won that race. And it was just a good conversation starter, and people knew I could win at that time. And I feel like that led to a lot of opportunities for sure. Sure. I mean, obviously a race that changed your life forever. When I look back at that, Daniel, I was doing a little bit of research. There's a little bit more to the story afterward. I didn't know this story until I did a little research and <laughs> got some help from your friend, Adrian Parker. So you didn't have enough gas to get home, and yes. you siphoned gasoline yep. out of the actual winning race car is that right <laughs> that's very true very yeah. true okay. we, um <laughs> yeah i was uh my mother gave me a 1995 honda civic when i was uh i turned 16 and she had bought that car brand new so it was it was uh, quite a few years old and that's that was my daily driver and i remember at that point didn't have a shifter ball on it you know the, nothing worked on the thing and <laughs> it was all i could do to get gas get back and forth to the racetrack and Typically, I would ride to the racetrack with the, the truck and trailer, uh, but because we had so many customers, I had, you know, set up cars, and we'd send the trailer that for some reason that day, I had to drive my Honda to the racetrack, and I remember pulling in on fumes, I mean, just out of gas, and thought, you know, heck, I was just going to get in the race car. I made it. I'd figure out how to get home after. Never would have dreamed that night would have turned out the way it turned out. When I won that race, Don Hawk presented the check up on stage. I believe Adrian, as he's sitting here next to us, <laughs> my business manager, was sitting there, and, and uh, they presented me that check, and... Before going on the microphone, Hawk said, man, what, what do you think? What are you going to do? And I, I just leaned in to, to Hawk and whispered in his ear, and I feel like he would validate the story. I said, man, I don't even have enough money to get gas to get home. <laughs> and uh, true story, ended up siphoning gas out of out of the race car, using fuel out of the extra jugs we had that had a little bit of fuel in them to put in the Honda that night, and off we went. Ended up at Steak and Shake. Ended up Steak and, and Shake, yeah. Celebrated on your way home. Yeah, I remember all those customers I talked about, You know, they all wanted to come celebrate with us, and by the time we cleared tech and, and, you know, did all that stuff, took all the pictures, it was like 3 a.m., I believe. All of our customers were sitting there at dinner with us. I can't remember the number. There's tons of people with us. And uh, everybody's ordering food, eating, having a good time. And uh, Dan Snyder and I are face down on the table sleeping. <laughs> we were, I don't think I slept for two days leading up to that event working on stuff. So it was uh, cool to have it work out like it did. Yeah, pretty exhausting experience, it sounds like. It's a great story. Very and rewarding. Yeah, I, I bet. And you were talking to Daniel about how you don't really worry about like what's happening 
kind of around you or another racing series you're not i mean some drivers i've heard kind of stay very much in touch with you know what rides are opening up where where do i need to be two years from now or three years from now yeah. how do i position myself to get to the cup series uh, it sounds like you're very much sort of laser focused one race at a time and not, is that because of just who you are or, do you, or is it sort of like you just it would maybe be too overwhelming to think about all the things you would need to break your way as they did to get, to get <laughs> you to cup with richard children's racing yeah for me you know i think i goes back to all those days, you know, of what we touched on earlier, those legend cars and late model days of I, I never had a means or a vision for how I was going to get to where I was going to, but all I knew was that I had to be fully immersed in whatever it was I had going on for, going on for me at the time. If I make the most out of that and the opportunity was supposed to work out, it'd work out. And uh, I think I've, I've been able to hang on to that, that mindset, and, and really that's the way I even treat, treat it to this day. I mean, I, I try to just stay fully immersed in – and what's going on and control and try to control, you know, the variables that I have in my life as best I can. And, and, um, you know, just put yourself with good people and surround yourself with good people. I've always believed good things will happen. And that's what I tried to do my entire life. And I've been fortunate to be in those situations because it has worked out and it's, um, extremely humbling. And the people will say, how can you, you know, have faith that it's all going to work out? I'm like, well, look at me. It, it always has at this point. <laughs> so while well, I live, while well, I live it any other way and truly is incredible to think about, how this whole journey has, has transitioned to what it's become. Is there one break? I'm sure it's almost impossible to, to try to rank them, but is there one thing that happened or one event that you can point to and say, yeah, that is the one that had to happen to absolutely get me to where I am today? Oh, my gosh. It's kind of like I talked about discrediting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you don't, I, exactly. Yeah, I, and you don't want to single one out because they all sort of matter. Right? Yeah, it seemed like all those ones I touched on, like that was it. I was down and out, and then – the next you know the, mm -hmm. the next piece of the puzzle would fall into place and then i'd meet one more person who knew this other guy and it kind of led to an uh, a relationship that would turn into me meeting someone who either wanted to sponsor a race car or, or owned a race car and and i end up driving for so many different people throughout throughout my time especially short track racing trying to get opportunities that i i, I credit every single person that i've got behind the wheel of or, or give me any kind of guidance as kind of all one big break um it came at different times but all of them had a vital part of what led to what was next, and, and I could have never dreamed that it would have led to what actually ended up being what it is now, but, you know, it's just it's crazy. I mean, I, I don't understand why it's happened the way it has, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely two or three big pivotal points. I mean, getting to go run that 98 car in Georgia was big. Winning Legends Million was big. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, my first truck start with Eddie Sharp and, and the people and doors that opened up to – you know, for me in 2014, it was 13 or 14, 13, I guess, man, time flies by 2013. <laughs> um, you know, that led to me meeting a group of investors and people that eventually ended up being a part of my career and give me opportunity, you know, at the truck level, the Xfinity level, that was probably one key moment because I'd kind of, you know, it's funny because I feel like I used every resource I had to get that one opportunity in that truck and, and tapped everybody out. Um, and, and still a lot of times that happens and you lose relationships, but all my stuff had always stayed so strong with, with relationships that people had helped me. Yeah. And because of that, it led to me meeting those folks. And, and um, you know, they ended up changing my life when, when I got the call that they wanted to sponsor some truck races and, and give me an opportunity to go truck racing. And that's probably the one time I was like, okay, all those nights and all that stuff, now I can 
I might be able to do this and actually pay for my meals, you know, if I do this. And that's, that's kind of what led to, you know, the last three to four years that put me on the national circuit. Right. When you could finally leverage all those relationships and history and experience to, to get where you are today, which of course is driving the number eight Chevrolet for Richard Childress Racing. You're five races into your rookie season as we speak here today you're just coming back here we're talking on a wednesday between fontana and martinsville yep i know it probably hasn't gone exactly <laughs> how you would hope so far but not at all. as a rookie you probably knew there would be some hard knocks as well yeah i knew there'd be you know bumps along the road um i would have thought that if we were going to struggle with anything maybe it'd be speed you know the, some of the variables that you can't control inside the seat but it's kind of been the opposite of that i feel like we've actually had speed we've had opportunities to have really good finishes and, and for whatever reason just have not been able to put it together you know my wife says I'm extremely way too hard on myself about making mistakes and and uh trying to keep myself from doing that and it seems like whenever the race car has been uh maybe not as good as I want it to be in the races I figure out a way not to make mistakes and and still something happened you know I think about Atlanta you know running inside the top five and having a tire come apart inside 15 to go and we had a really solid day and but that's also a moment that gave my entire team, gave them the confidence that, hey, you know what, if we give, give Macari wants and we all work toward the same goal, we can have success. So that was a big moment for us. And that's kind of honestly the moment that's probably gotten us through the, you know, the, the Vegas struggles, through the, the Phoenix struggles, and given us confidence that we are, are, we're all building towards something good if we can just do our jobs and, and do it to our full potential. You know, when the cars have been the best, you know, Fontana is probably one of the best race cars. It is the best race car I've had all year. And uh, then I make a mistake. I got into the yeah. fence and, and blow a tire, and then we didn't clearance it, and uh, we blow three more tires throughout the race. So that was – those things are – yes, I mean, it may be part of being a rookie or not, but, you know, we got to figure out a way to eliminate those variables and close in on, on what you got to do to put a full race together. I always thought when I – if I ever got the opportunity to cup race that because the races were so much longer, you'd have so much more time um, to rebound. It almost seems like I've taken an extra time and, and we've kind of snowballed it <laughs> if something <laughs> tough did happen. But yeah. on the flip side of it, you know, those moments like Atlanta are what sometimes it takes, you know, guys in my situation half the year, if not more, to have that, hey, this can happen time. But having that that early has is, is kind of made everybody feel like they have a ton of pep in their step. Everybody at RCR, it was big for myself confidence-wise to know you can with, can compete and, and race the, the best guys at this level. And with all that being said, I, I think I tweeted right after Fontana that I was more mad at myself than anybody could ever imagine. But I woke up on that Monday morning with another opportunity and I accept the challenge and look forward to hopefully having my better days ahead. Yeah, well, you're certainly not alone in adapting and assimilating in the cup. I mean, I can remember you talked about Atlanta and last year, I remember William Byron's first race in a cup car at Atlanta. He like burned the tires off through the first 30 laps of the race. So I think everybody kind of has those struggles. And, you know, you're 28 years old, Daniel, and you're part of this group of young drivers that have kind of all entered into Cup at the same time over the last three or four years. And I know you know some of these guys as well. We were just talking about before we got started that the Eric Joneses and Ryan Blaney and Chase Elliott, you've mentioned his name a few times, Bubba Wallace. Not only have you raced against these guys, it sounds like th there's been some camaraderie there between all of you as well. Yeah, in some way, shape, or form, we've all been connected. You know, I, I think about, you know, Blaney, first off, you know, he raced legend cars, was a class below me when I was racing legend cars. He's a little bit younger than I am. Bubba and I did some racing together when we were younger, and, and Chase was racing a younger class than I was growing up. So to see those guys have the success they had, it kind of gave me the opportunity to know, like, hey, if I ever get that shot, I, you know, I've beat them, they've beat me. We, we all knew that we've all worked towards the same thing. And, 
and now that we're all th at the levels we're at, yeah, we've been able to enjoy some of it too. Blaney and Bubba and myself and my wife and uh, some other, of our other friends, heck, we've been on vacation together, went to Hawaii together this past off season, just have a, a great time. I mean, they're just they're really good people. And I think the fans have seen that too. You know, all those names you, you mentioned that I've just mentioned, you know, they have a way of resonating with, with our fan base, especially our generation, I guess you'd call it. And it's cool to see see them be themselves you know, in the spotlight and, and on the stage that we're all at. And, uh, yeah, I feel like very similar in those guys. We all like just have a good time and, and enjoy uh, the ride that we're on because we know we're all fortunate. We may not say it a lot, but we know it's a huge blessing to be able to drive race cars for a living and have the stage that we get to perform on. And, yeah, the camaraderie between all of us it goes way, way back, and it's all tied into something that has happened way before what the, the public eye sees now. Heck, I remember my very first late model win came in a Jags All-Star Tour Eric Jones and I ran three wide for three or four laps around Plymouth, uh, a little racetrack called Plymouth, Indiana, and, you know, stuff like that. You know, battles with those guys and your peers is what sticks out as you're climbing the ladder. So now that we're all where we're at, it's cool to be able to share those stories. And we only see, you know, as you mentioned, we the public doesn't know how those bonds and relationships were formed. But now that you guys are all in the Cup Series, we only see one side of it, too, mostly through what we see on TV or through social media. For sure. You have the, the firsthand experience, so naturally <laughs> I've got to ask, uh, like Bubba or Blaney, like we see that side on social, but who's truly the most wild? The most uh, wild? Yeah, when you guys go out at night. <laughs> oh, man, that's uh, – I'm trying to think. That's hard to categor you know, categorize because I feel like they all have their, their moments. I'm sure we all do. <laughs> Depends on the mood and, and the, the situation we're in. Um, you know, firsthand being with Bubba and Blaney on vacation, that was a good time because we all just got to let loose and do our own thing yeah. and, and kind of we're all kind of our own people, right? You got Bubba is really outgoing and he's so good at all the social stuff and he just he's into, you know, his photography and then you got Blaney who's more chill and, and relaxed but he can get wild and have a good time when he wants and I'm not saying I'm in between the two of them, but a little bit. Um, and then, you know, Eric Jones, another guy, you know, he's he's known to have a, a, a good party or two, you know, throughout an off week that we all like to enjoy. And honestly, man, I, there's been times where we've all been together at once. And yeah. it's really no matter what, what it is or where we're at or what we're doing, when you're with all of us, we just have a, a good time enjoying it because – you know that's what it's all about you know it's it's we know the situation we're in that most people can't just go hang out and and have a good time on a wednesday night so if we're going to do it we're going to do it and have a good time with it so you, you reached the cup series daniel after uh, a few seasons in xfinity and you have a lot of success there you made the championship round both of the yep. last two years okay so the only thing that was missing obviously was was that win yep. how did that feel i guess coming in the cup knowing that there was just that little bit left on the table I, I don't know if it makes a difference or if it's validation or not but to have that victory and and to have the backflip that everybody is waiting to see after one of your wins because we know you do that we haven't really get to see that <laughs> and that, and i know if, if i wait too long for this backflip thing <laughs> my legs may not work good enough i'm getting up there in age <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, yeah, that's right. I mean, heck, I've you know grew up doing the backflips whenever I'd win, and you know, talking about not winning at the at you know the national level, I think it I'd won and won often in, in anything that I was ever given a shot to drive, you know, growing up, and because of that, I think that's what led to a lot of the opportunities. And for whatever reason, when as you climb the ladder, and it's supposed to be this way, it's not. It's supposed to get harder. It's supposed to be the hardest level, especially now and at the cup level. But you try to take those moments and, and kind of judge them for what they're worth right like I know when I got in a truck for the first time you know the the stuff you're driving is is a, a huge factor in whether or not you're going to be able to contend and then if if it's capable of contending as far as the equipment then you're going to contend and if not you got to try to you know if it's a 12th place truck or whatever it is you're driving you try to go run minimum 12th and if you run eighth or ninth and you overachieved and 
And I think doing that time and time again with whatever opportunity I was in is what led to my next shot. I'm confident in saying that the people who need to know inside the garage understand what I've what I've drove over the past couple of years, and and uh, and even the owners know what I've drove over the past couple of years, and and know that when it, all that stuff comes together and and the opportunity meets the equipment and we're all prepared and then I, I will be able to win and win races on a regular basis. It's just, for whatever reason, since getting to the national level, it just hasn't worked out that way. Uh, but, yeah, personally, I want to win races. I'm disappointed I haven't won races to this point. And I, I think there are times where I should have. Um, even if it wasn't the stuff, if I didn't have the equipment, then um, there were days where people had problems, and I probably should have rose the occasion. And I'm also guilty of trying to maybe make too much happen at times, and I probably did in some of those instances. But, you know, I've learned from it, and I've tried to, always kind of put that back in the memory bank of you know not getting too excited in those moments and and i think it's just made me appreciate you know those chances you do have i mean 40 people in the world get to do this right i mean everybody wants to win a race everybody wants to be in contention week in and week out but on the flip side of it you still got to go battle and, and see where it see where it falls every day but i know each one of those situations that i've been in when i laid down at night i did everything i could to to try to perform and, and execute and develop a program to be as best as it could be. And um, I remember looking at Danny Stockman last year, specifically at Homestead, knowing it was my last Xfinity race, you know, as a full-time Xfinity driver at, at that time. And I looked at him and I says, you know, win, lose, or draw here at Homestead. I'm proud of what we've done with this program since I got here in 2016, the way the cars drove, where the program was at to where it's at now. And even, like, I look at Tyler Reddick, and you see what now he's able to do on a weekly basis. I feel like that's not just – they didn't just get there overnight. Right, you, you know, had was, a contribution in that, Yeah, right? and, that's yeah. What, and that's what I was Built that team. telling Stockman. Like, we had a huge, huge amount of, of involvement in getting it to where it was. And, and there, there is some pride in that, right? I feel like when I grew up short track racing, a lot of this goes back to that. You, I knew I didn't have the, the best stuff, but, you know, you could save tires here and there, and opportunities came up, you won the race. And uh, – tried to make the most out of whatever you're in and then some and um, that's what I feel like I was fortunately able able being able to do in the Xfinity program when I was in it and and now um, it's cool to see those guys kind of reap the fruits of the labors on that side of it and hopefully uh, can do the same thing now in the eight car full-time cup racing yeah and you certainly have somebody uh, at home who understands what it's like to to go through the ups and downs of a racing career as we mentioned your wife Kenzie you met while you were racing against her when you were a teenager and I've heard that she's both Greatest cheerleader, um, greatest critic. <laughs> um, we, we had a feature actually on both of you on NASCAR and NBC. I, I can't remember what race it was, but it was one of the pre-race coverage yep. shows and talked about how her family didn't want really her to date anybody in racing. Yep, that's, that's true, very true. You guys kept it a secret. Obviously, eventually you made it known and got married. What's it like having somebody like that in your corner who I think understands it probably on a greater level? Without a doubt. I tell everybody, Kenzie is a full-blown superstar. The way she's handled the last couple of years, you know, from her career on the driving side of it not, not working out, and the way she has handled that and stuck behind me, it's, it's been incredible, really, man. It's just I think about when we met, you know, heck, there were times where I was sweeping her, the floor of her, her late model shop, and she was racing full-time doing what she loved to do and I didn't have a ride and to see the tables turn and her accept it the way she has and just be there for me is you know what life and hopefully the person you find to share life with is, is my opinion is what it's all about so uh, she is just she's taking it with stride and it's made those days when you're frustrated and whatnot having somebody who's lived it and had it fall short to be there to remind you like hey talk about being one of the 40 guys like put all that stuff in perspective 
and it gets you through those tough moments. It's gotten me through the past <laughs> four to five weeks because they have been rough. And uh, I think she's been there to just really help me manage the expectations, knowing that each time you climb, you know, the step on that ladder, that it's going to become harder and harder. And, and that's she's been the person in my corner cheerleading me through that and also keeping it real. Like, you know, I got out of the car at Fontana. She knew. She looked me straight in the eye and said, you know, you screwed up. A hundred percent. She was right. There's no <laughs> doubt in it. And that's, but you know, it's it's funny now looking back at it. But I just appreciate how real she is with me. And you know, over time, pe- people will see that that she's just extremely passionate about it. And it's cool to f- find that person you can share that with and know that she has a better appreciation for it than most ever will. And very cool dynamic that we can share together. And it's cool to have her on my side. That is cool. You guys raced against each other, not all the time, but a little bit. Yep. On the NASCAR NBC feature, Kenzie said that she knew that both of you weren't going to make it. As yep. you said, there's only 40 people. So there's only so many slots you have. When she kind of reached that point of deciding her career wasn't going to happen, but yours was going to go on, did you guys make that decision together? Or how does that happen with a racing couple like that? You know, there's never really a, a definite talk in the middle of it mm-hmm. it was happening so fast you know it was like one year she was driving for harry scott and some of the best cane and stuff you could drive for to kind of trickling down and and you saw the rides becoming less and less quality and as that happened i was kind of starting to get my shots right right and as that was happening you know she was just trying to make the most out of what she had going on i'd go the different direction of the country and race and to do my own thing and we'd kind of come back and and just prep for the next week so there's never really a time to really figure out where everybody was going we were just trying to figure out how to provide for each other as it happened you know heck I, I remember my first year full-time truck racing um even into my second year with with brad Kis- or my first year with brad Keselowski's second year full-time truck racing you know she was out of a cane in ride and heck i was preparing super late models during the week for her still at that time on monday tuesday wednesday so she could go super late model race for the team i used to drive for <laughs> out of georgia because they were giving her an opportunity to get back in a car and and even at that point, there was no like, hey, we're, you know, we're just doing this for fun. It was still with the goal of trying to get her another opportunity to get back, you know, towards the top of the sport. And, you know, just timing didn't work out on that side of it. And it probably took until about a year and a half, two years ago, right before we got married, that we'd like, you know what, you know, by then I'd, I'd gotten my Xfinity contract and signed. And, and, and not that that's what it's about, but we knew that, that there's going to be so much more time dedicated to, to what I had to going on and and it was going to take all of both of our time to be able to do it and do it 100 percent. and at the time the late mile stuff it was great but it got to where it was for me to put the effort in that i felt like i owed her that it was going to take away from one or the other so we just made the decision that that she would come and support me full time and down the road i still have a super late mile in my garage actually <laughs> as we speak and if we want to go down the snowball derby or go run a, a local show somewhere we may do that for fun but it was about two years ago we decided you know fortunately for one of us and for both of us that we're getting this opportunity. But, you know, we don't look at it as how you made it and I didn't. It's, you know, we did it together because when I say she literally has been there since the beginning, I'm talking sweeping the, the garage floor for, you know, two or 300 bucks a week and thrashing on cars. She's seen that side of Daniel Hemrick to, to where it's at now. So I know she fully gets it and we just do it together. You're from Kannapolis, as is a famous seven-time champion <laughs> of the Cup Series, who obviously also has an affiliation with Richard Childress Racing. Dale Earnhardt drove for Richard Childress. We're sitting here on Highway 3, which is not only like a couple of minutes away from Dale Earnhardt Incorporated or the former location of it, it's also Highway 3, 3 for Dale. Um, do you think about that at all? I mean, do you ever consider like there are parallels there? I mean, does anybody bring it up with you? Or You know, throughout the first 
you know, those early times we talked about earlier in the conversation, 2008, 9, 10, it, it really wasn't talked about because there were a lot of kids from here that were racing, a lot of kids I was competing against mm-hmm. week in and week out. And then as you climb that ladder, as we talked about, that number of kids deteriorates quickly. And now you become the one that's standing out. And as I've been able to reach the level that I'm at, now it's obviously a huge parallel. And we talked about the shop I worked out of two miles down the road. You can go two miles the other way, and that's the house I grew up in. And you go two miles straight down Highway 3, and you're standing pretty much there in front of the Dale Hart statue of, of, of the man himself. And and myself growing up as a huge Dale Hart fan, you know, I was introduced to racing. It was, you know, sitting at the foot of my of my dad or my mother's bed watching Dale Hart and Terry Labonte go at it, a night race at Bristol, you know. Like, those are the memories that were instilled within me and, and the stories that I heard growing up in this area of what that man meant to this town and obviously what he meant to the sport that I love and now I'm fortunate to still – being it definitely resonates with me and just, just very humbling honestly you know knowing the, the story of this town and, and how much they rallied around that guy it's it's cool and really unbelievable now to see the town kind of transitioning I see more and more Kannapolis Hemrick fans week in and week out yeah it's something easy to put your blinders on and not look at but I try to keep my eyes open to it because I appreciate yeah. it greatly does anybody does Richard Childress or anybody at RCR ever bring it up i would presume no <laughs> i presume it's well, sort of just understood you know it is it's it's one of those things that you know all of our partners you know they enjoy the story you know i, I enjoy telling the story because it's it is a little kind of rare in today's sure. day and world i mean not only being from north carolina which is hard to find a lot of north carolina drivers as it is but being one from this same area and you know richard and i've had conversations about his and dale's relationships on plane rides going to do sponsor events over the last you know year or two and it's been cool to sh- not only hear stories about you know the two guys I looked up to that being Richard and Dale as a kid but to now hear the stories and the backgrounds and and whatnot and and how that the more I hear that stuff the more it kind of resonates with me of of the kind of the the journey and and the ride that I've had to go through to get to this point how it does correlate and um, just makes makes all the things you thought about a person you know I never got to really meet Dale but all the things that you thought you knew about a person and to be able to hear somebody actually speak on real time about it that's a it's been an incredible incredible journey man to, to hear those stories and be able to experience those with Richard. It sounds like a, as a Kannapolis native it's almost a privilege. Oh it's a privilege it's surreal it's yeah. a lot of a lot of words that it's just um, I'm still learning every day because it's just a situation I never thought I'd be fortunate enough to be in. Is it pressure at all? I mean, I've heard, I think it was Chase Elliott who I've heard say this, was that pressure is a privilege. Is it kind it's of a, the same thing? Is that the way a, you look at it? It's yeah. exactly, exactly a great way to put it. You know, pref, uh, you know, having that kind of pressure and, and the opportunity that comes with that um, is a privilege. And to know that nobody else since him or even before him, really, I mean, outside of, of Ralph and, and Dell Jr., but, you know, outside that core family has been able to get to this level or even close to this level, you know, coming from the same area. And it's unbelievable to see people rally behind it as the weeks go here. Hopefully get to see them rally a little bit more if you have some more success here in the Cup Series as a rookie. Uh, Daniel, thanks for uh, making so much time here. I uh, really appreciate sitting down. I'm sorry it took this long to actually no, don't, sit down with conversation. an interview, but uh, I appreciate you giving me all this time. Absolutely, man. Thanks so much. It was cool to sit down and get to catch up with you. And, hey, we know each other now, right? We've yeah. had a good conversation. <laughs> yeah. It was fun. Let's meet at Marathon near Kannapolis like maybe once every couple months. Let's do it. Sounds good. Our thanks again to Daniel Hemrick for carving out so much time to talk to us on the NASCAR NBC podcast. Thanks as well to Adrian Parker, Hemrick's business manager. Adrian helped coordinate that conversation. He suggested the Marathon gas station as the optimum location for this podcast and provided some rich background material to help ground that conversation. So thanks again, Adrian. Really appreciate all of your help. 
Lots of good stuff coming on the NASCAR and NBC podcast in the weeks ahead. Next week, the guest is Kyle Petty, who will begin the 25th anniversary of his world-famous charity ride on May 3rd. It's the longest route in the history of the Kyle Petty charity ride, Washington to Florida. We had a great conversation, as always, with Kyle about the ride. Kyle truly is the renaissance man of NASCAR, and I think you'll really enjoy that episode next week. After that, I'll have a special narrative episode of the NASCAR NBC podcast involving Denny Hamlin and his longtime relationship with sponsor FedEx. We went to Memphis for that, talked to a lot of people involved with FedEx, as well as Denny himself. Lots of good stuff, and I'm working hard on assembling that. think you'll enjoy that as well. That's in two weeks, special narrative episode of the NASCAR NBC podcast. The NASCAR NBC podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. Please leave a rating and review if you like what you're hearing. It really helps us out in spreading the word. And as always, you can send feedback to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.